and welcome to Bry Affairs. I'm Kiara. I'm Francia. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Research and Analysis Team. And we are your co-hosts for this episode. Raya is a youth-led international think tank that translates the abstract world of international affairs by simplifying rather than generalizing. Raya is a place where you come to learn about the stories and worries of political leaders, the behind the scenes of decision makers, and how politics impacts and changes your life. This is Raya Affairs filling you in wherever you are. Disclaimer, expressed opinions in this episode are welcome, even though they are not a direct reflection of Raya Group, as we specialized in unbiased writing. In today's episode, we will be focusing on Rishi Sunak and his role in UK-US intelligence sharing. We are pleased to welcome Michele Testoni as a guest on the podcast today. Michele, would you like to introduce yourself and elaborate for our listeners? Hello, everyone, and thanks for the invitation and thanks the, the, the audience for listening. Um, I'm professor of international relations at IE University. I'm originally from Italy, and my area of specialization is uh, U.S. foreign policy, transatlantic security relation, uh, and um, Mediterranean security, essentially. Thank you so much, Michele, for the introduction. For the first question, could you please tell us which leader, either dead or alive, who has impacted the world, would you want to have a conversation with? Well, this is a this is a very interesting and difficult question um, because there are many people that actually are worth being not just the interview but share some moment. I I would say FDR, so former President Roosevelt, uh, the one of the New Deal. I think that um, is, it would be very interesting to talk to the one that in a in a moment, in a decade of deep political, social, and economic crisis, managed to maintain democracy, not only in the United States, but you know, in, in those places that democracy held, um, to maintain some kind of guidance and the, the reform the economy, also thanks to the U.S. war effort in World War II. And uh, so I would like to have a, another fireside chat with FDR. Thank you so much, Michele. And now, Francia, the floor is all is yours. Okay, so as uh, you may have seen from the title, today we'll be discussing Rishi Sunak, in particular Rishi Sunak's role in the development of AI and the deployment of new technologies, and his role with uh, creating new diplomatic fora and other kinds of communications with leaders abroad in regards to this topic. So, Michele, thank you so much again for being here with us, and I'll just start right away. So, last month, November 1st, uh, we had an AI safety summit held by the UK, specifically Rishi Sunak, obviously, at Bletchley Park, uh, which talked about strategic, regional, uh, and global deployments of AI and held players like China, the US, the UK, Australia, and leaders from the European Union and they all signed what is now known as the Bletchley Declaration, agreeing that, quote, there's a potential for serious and even catastrophic harm, either deliberate or unintentional, stemming from the most significant capabilities of these AI models that are not being developed, despite recognition of its really big potential benefit. But in their statements, both Sunak, Sunak's cabinet, and Biden's cabinet also, make reference to developing and building AI by the values of the Western world or quote-unquote our values, even though uh, 
these this declaration was also signed by powers which are not sort of traditionally seen as Western powers, right? Like China, uh, Russia wasn't there, but uh, Singapore also chi- signed this declaration. And so in separate statements, apart from this declaration, the UK and the US go so far as to mention China and Russia as examples of authoritarian models of technology deployment that would be a competition or would be, let's say, going head to head to the Western model. And what do you think, Michele? Are Biden and Sunak crying wolf, so to say, about these authoritarian models with regards to AI? What does the Western model look like with technology deployment? And what would an authoritarian digital world look like for the consumer? Why is this important? Well, I think that we are um, we are deeply walking through a, a uncharted territory because, as you mentioned, uh, it, it's hard, still very hard to define what it, what we mean by a Western model of AI and technological development. Because the first glance, we should be all referred to two of the main pillars of our liberal democratic systems which are accountability and responsiveness. Uh, AI should provide non-democratic regimes with an enhanced capability to respond to questions, to social questions and issues. Uh, we see this, for instance, in China with COVID. But this is, of course, is a very paternalistic, authoritarian-like model. Uh, so I would say that the key in this case is accountability of leaders. However, as we all know, um, when it comes to uh, all these kind of technologies, in particular AI, Spionage, and the long story of information gathering and sharing, for an array of obvious reasons related to security, national security, states tend to maintain a very closed, you know, opaque domain. And... Western countries are no exceptions. So the we have a, a number of cases now. Since, for instance, the Echelon program, the Prism program, the way in which in the United States the NSA was spying not just potential threats or opponent, but also friends. You know, we all remember, I guess, the the great scandal produced in, in Germany. Uh, we had a very um, lively, so to speak, debate in the German part in the Bundestag when Angela Merkel was chancellor about the fact that the NSA was spying uh, German German companies. And also is a rare recent news now that two police agents in Spain have been you know caught by uh, you know, providing illegal illegally you know secretized information from Spain to the United States. So the, the it's a very slippery, so to speak, opaque situation in which the borders are not very defined and are likely to remain undefined. So talking about this this problem of particularly data sharing, it seems quite, let's say, separate from the actual everyday lives of the public, right? So are governments equipped to protect the public in a way that is more specific? So Let's say we put aside the the national security concerns of data sharing and in particular intelligence sharing, which the U.S. and the U.K. are definitely uh, very keen on. Uh, Are governments equipped to protect the public? Yes and no, in the sense that 
um, states, governments are increasingly developing a number of tools to protect, uh, for instance, power grids, for instance, firewalls, when it comes to public institutions, uh, libraries, you know, for instance, digital repositories of information. And, um, yeah, I would say also our digital devices that we have at home in our everyday life. On the other way, uh, they're not yet equipped, and maybe to some extent they're not even particularly interested in providing a full-scale protection because, first, it doesn't exist. Second, these technologies are developing, and so the actors do not have a strong incentive to constrain themselves, whether public or private. And third, as we just mentioned, now the 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 gov the issue of government uh, is um, and the way in which the government what we mean by governmental protection of private individuals is a very controversial story. There's a um, uh, there's, there's a beautiful book from the nineteen uh, the 19, early sixties, if I'm not mistaken, uh, asking itself. Would the United States become a garrison state? Uh, the, uh, the the increase at that time, the question was: since the United States was going through a huge process of internationalization of its foreign policy, and the United States, for the first time, from a regional actor, had become a global actor, or to a large extent, was the most important global actor. So, to what extent we would have a securitization? of everyday's life of American citizens, in particular with uh, you know, more in-depth and more expanded uh, prison policy or criminal code or the, the, the spionage of the state to private commercial activities of companies, of individuals, and you know, of our day life. So it's, um, I would say, again, I repeat, is a yes-no answer from my from my side because um, the way in which somebody protect other people can immediately turn into a way to control those people so we need to be very much careful about what we mean protection is protection a guarantee from an external let's call um, offensive action or is also a way, an excuse to control citizens' fundamental freedoms and rights. And yeah. you know, we have a huge jurisdiction over, you know, over, over this contradiction. Right. Um, even recently at an event, I believe Rishi Sunak was uh, interviewing Elon Musk with regards to AI. Uh, he, he said something to the degree of saying that AI companies and or AI developers can't mark their own homework. So... Uh, AI companies are obviously not incentivized to self-regulate or to slow themselves down with the very quick um, progression of artificial intelligence. And that is why Rishi Sunak established the, the Safety Institute for AI. So this is a very interesting question of whether it is in the public's best interest for the government to have a hand in in the regulation of artificial intelligence. 
Uh, however, a lot of experts, including Elon Musk himself in that in that interview, do agree that it it needs regulation and that AI needs to be secured in one way or another, in particular, according to Rishi Sunak, because of jobs, right? And so uh, something that's very close to him as the elections come up is making sure that he, let's say, gets a hold of the narrative of technological development in the United Kingdom and make sure that AI becomes something that he can harness for the betterment of the economy. Do you think that AI will... Mm, more quickly or more slowly seep its way into the job market and affect jobs? And if so, do you think that AI is something that Rishi Sunak can actually control the narrative around and maybe gain or lose voters with regards to this issue? So, okay, we have a, <clears throat> we have a number of questions in this case. Uh, so first we need to, to um, of course, the, the, as far as the first question, the AI is going to have an increasing impact on our economies, the British economy first, as we're talking about Sunak. But every day in, in a global economy in general, the, the, the most advanced states from the US, China, Europe, it, it, it's going, to, already has an effect. For instance, it's, there's a few days news about the, the massive, uh, you know, the, 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 restructuring of Telefonica due to technological uh, change. So the, we, will, is likely, we will likely see in the foreseeable future a higher rate of job destruction due to these kind of technologies. Second, uh, Suna comes from the, the Conservative Party, which is a, a traditionally a business-oriented party. So he's trying to Queer a compromise between corporate interests, public interests, and therefore this very uh, hard compromise between innovation and security, between uh, the necessity of governments, especially a government like the United Kingdom with all its uh, post-imperial tradition. So on one hand, the incentive to keep running, to stay at the forefront of technological innovation, and on the other hand, to see what are the you know, the step by step process of this uh, of these innovations and uh, their dark side, put it this way. Uh, does he control the narrative? Uh, well, no governments, it seems to me, as a narrative. Uh, apart, for instance, we can say that it's been institutionalized in the Bletchley Declaration, uh, which is a common framework sufficiently loose to provide a sense of direction, but then each state, each government in its own social condition will have a, a, a narrative or trying to find a narrative. Uh, it seems very likely that in the next month, when Britain is going to have general elections, uh, the country will have a new government. Uh, from the Labour Party, but in, also in this case, I think that the narrative will hardly change. So a Starmer cabinet will perhaps stress some something, perhaps in a more clear way, the social uh, consequences of this kind of job disruption. But at the same time, Starmer is not Corbyn, is a centrist, so to speak, uh, Labour person. So... Uh, this is not just a matter of party politics, it's a matter of state politics. 
So I, I see that it is very likely to have a you know, very high degree of continuity, but same story in, in next year in the United States, you know, when we will have a, the presidential election. No matter who's going to win, apparently either Biden or Trump, let's see what the future holds in store. Uh, so no matter who's in the White House, uh, it seems fair to me that the, 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 the state issue for the way in which the United States approaches AI unless of some you know unforeseeable externality will remain quite stable, quite coherent. Right. And so far, at least with the United States, we have seen that the first US-UK agreement with regards to AI came about in 2017 with the Trump-May administrations and then renewed with the Johnson administration. And then again, just this year between Biden and Sunak, which mentioned collaboration in the tech sector, especially with AI and data. And there is an important question there. I mean, Sunak has a much closer ally, let's say, with the EU. Uh, although US-UK relations are very historic, um, the US and the UK tend to do a lot of talking with regards, a lot of a lot of agreements, a lot of summits with regards to AI, although they are both very high investors in, in AI, in particular with capital funding, so private funding. However, the EU leads in regulatory action, which is something that Sunak is mostly speaking about. So why is Sunak betting on Biden instead of the EU in this case to strengthen relations the most? Would it be Brexit pride or transatlantic tradition? What would you say? Well, in this case, there's, um, I would say there's, uh, there are a few factors that we need to take into consideration. Um, well, the first we, we already mentioned is a cultural and political standing of the Conservative Party and, of course, of Sunak himself. Uh, so the British conservative attitude in this case is leaning much more clearly than historically has always been the case uh, to the U.S. perspective. So a much uh, business-oriented, uh, alien of excessive, or at least from their perspective, regulatory scheme. Uh, second, it's the, 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 the as we mentioned, the, the, the historical transatlantic, the special relationship you know, between the, the two Anglo-Saxon countries. Uh, historic uh, is a fundamental pillar of British foreign security policy. No matter who is in office, whether Labour or Conservative, we have always seen a pretty stable degree of uh, you know, the existential relationship you know, between the two shores of the pond. Third, it's the, the way in which all British governments from Brexit on are trying to respond to this identity crisis of the United Kingdom, uh, epitomized by the Brexit referendum and exaggerated by the post-referendum consequences. So what is the place of Britain in the world? Uh, and again, of course, Britain, in this case, is the incentive of Britain and British governments to play like a bridge between D.C. and Brussels is augmented. Um, Britain is the necessary partner, they say, for the United, King, for the United States in global politics. And of course, they, they need to differentiate themselves from the EU. 
On the other way around, there's the the, United, the European Union policy that, as you mentioned, is um, is much more is a higher degree of intervention in this case, which I do personally share. Um, and so the the I think that the the, the in this case, um, the, the 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 position of the United Kingdom is is pretty clear, at least in its strategic ambition, is not clear yet in the sense that how this strategic clarity is going to produce into policies. If you want to stay with the United States on one hand and with the European Union on the other hand, despite the fact that EU and US are the closest allies, uh, so to square a circle, to find a middle ground is always always difficult, right? So the, the, again, I would say is is a state issue, state for the United Kingdom, no matter who is in office. And the and again we are we are watching uh, we are walking through uncharted territory and the the Britain will certainly uh, privilege continue to privilege this Anglo-Saxon alliance, you know the Five Eyes with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and of course the the U.S. in order to maintain itself afloat in uh, in this kind of in, in this issue area. Right. And we saw this with just a few years ago with the UK banning 5G technology deployed by Huawei, right? Which uh, at least 10 of EU of the EU countries followed such policy, particularly pressured by the United States, by the Trump administration, with um, quitting intelligence sharing or at least restricting it. And now the UK is setting a similar path in, in, in this regard with AI and, and promising uh, privileged intelligence and tech sharing with, with nations such as the United States, Australia, and Japan in particular. So these, these strategic competitors, let's say, uh, or regional competitors to China. And we can see that AI is heading in a similar direction of securitization, uh, although in some of the summits we are including competitors such as China or perceived competitors such as China in this case. Do you think that this is an opportunity that will be missed for cooperation with a strategic competitor like China if the securitization route is taken? Or would you say that this is a necessary measure in terms of foreign policy? Well, it's hard to say. And the answer that each of us may provide is largely based on our political or eventually ideological stance with regard to China. Uh, It's inevitable, it's quite obvious to say that uh, the couple from China, as Trump uh, started to say at the beginning of of his mandate in 2017, uh, despite being a, perhaps a national security for the United States, is is very unlikely. So the the global right. supply chains, not just for trade, for commodities, but also for investment, for technology, uh, China is deeply intertwined in this. And the couple from China, to me, it's largely difficult. And we have seen cases of country like Italy or Spain that has a less um, a less belligerent, so to speak, a less aggressive stance with relation to China. The idea that interdependence can be governed is still is still very much ingrained in these countries. Seems to me that also Germany 
uh, goes in this direction. And for instance, we see how many times, for instance, Olaf Scholz, uh, the, the, the current chancellor, has, has traveled to China with a, a number of German entrepreneurs to, to maintain Chinese and German trade economic relations positive, despite all odds. So the, it, it's certainly an issue uh, that will be likely debated next year. As we know, next year NATO turns 75. Uh, the, the NATO summit in Washington, D.C. has already been called for mid-July, from 9 to 11th of July. And certainly, there's the how do we need to approach China, whether a, let's call a constructive engagement or a much more defensive posture will certainly be debated is going to be one of the, let's say, top three or five priorities of, of NATO. And so um, we will continue to see in the foreseeable future a continental European perspective, let's call this way, versus an Anglo-Saxon perspective, with the former being so far more, more lenient, uh, more optimistic with a regu regulatory approach. China needs to be engaged, especially because Chinese economy is, is turning, is going down. The Chinese government is taking even more interventionist approach in the Chinese economy and society. On the other way around, the the is that the UK and US, Canadian and other countries' position, we need to be more aggressive with China. We don't. We need a technological. Containment, even though NATO will will hardly use this word containment uh, of China, and the so uh, we will see these two positions uh, competing now within the transatlantic uh, framework. Last but not least, the way in which the Western perspective is going to lean. So again, whether a more engaging or more defensive posture will also depend on the way in which China will relate with Russia, to what extent right. we can try to assess technological transfer, data sharing between Beijing and Moscow. Uh, so also Chinese behavior will determine European, British, and North American policies. I see. So in this regard, we can sort of maybe look at where each country is at in their, let's say, in this new race uh, for AI development. So as of 2023, private investment in AI in the US uh, is double that of China's, and not to mention the EU's and the UK and other top investors such as Israel and Singapore, who are also highly invested in having uh, these technologies harnessed. So... <clears throat> Isn't Biden already way ahead of the race? What is the alarm with Chinese investment in AI or Chinese regulation? Wouldn't we say that in this case, given the low regulatory threshold that we've had thus far, um, hasn't there already been a very big headway uh, done by the West in AI regulation? Why is there an emphasis now in staying or getting ahead? Why is that important? I think it's important for, um, you know, we have facts, you know, the technology is evolving. So we, it's a long life learning process, so to speak. You know, we adapt our policies to some facts, 
cyber warfare, cyber terrorism, uh, again, industrial spionage, uh, and this the, the, this narrative will, I mean, in my perspective, is going to uh, to acquire even more mature and uh, from the United States in particular, a, a more mature interventionist policy. Now we uh, we are going to see a revival of cannon or containment of some new Cold War warriors or Cold War 2.0, because this is part of an Anglo-Saxon, U.S. and British uh, discourse. On the other way around, um, as, as we all know, especially in the U.S., but also this is also true in the whole of the world, uh, all politics is local. And so in order to try to gather consensus, in order to re-win, win an election, uh, find an opponent, find an external enemy, whether true or alleged, usually pays off. And um, you know this Eurasian authoritarian technological dictatorship uh, or dictatorships, if you want to make Russia and China state together, uh, it pays off, politically pays off. And so um, in this case, I, I, it seems to me that in the United Kingdom, labor and conservatives do not have very you know, explicitly policy differences. Same story in the United States with Democrats and Republicans. And when it comes to Europe, uh, we are still paying, you know, we are lying behind. So the, 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 this discourse, this awareness in the European continental Europe is not very much developed, <clears throat> to put it mildly. And um, whether on tradition, where we look at the traditional left or traditional right, despite the ongoing polarization on both sides of the spectrum, uh, European societies and political elites still maintain a pretty much coherent uh, opaque narrative. So, so to reply to your question, I think it's both a strategic and um, and, and, and it's, a, it's an everyday life response. So it, it goes around the political business cycle, it pays off, and so it's something that is both attached to a you know, a factual evolution of things, but also to a, a strategic goal, which is the, the, the always try to find out an enemy and use this enemy to avoid uh, excessive criticisms to your policy action. Wow, you make a, that's a really interesting point. I, I, I would say that I tend to agree with this idea of um, the strategic how do you say, the strategic advantage of politicizing or securitizing a, a particular issue so that more people agree with your policy actions. And that reminds me of this, this point that we, well, at least that I've noticed in talking about the advent of AI and, and new digital technologies, which is much more different than, I would say, the narrative surrounding other technological advances in history. Um, such as the Industrial Revolution, which were often coupled with, if not sort of correlated or related to the widespread revolution and a good degree of democratization. And yet 
the stories that we tell or tell ourselves about the potential social impact of AI predicts the opposite, an erosion of what truth is and the other pillars of our liberal democratic societies. And should we be this pessimistic about the advancement of AI, let's say if gone unregulated or if our regulations fail, are leaders such as those that signed the Bletchley Declaration, are they too pessimistic or are they being realistic about the potential side effects of having super intelligent machines? Well, in in principle, we should be all realistic, no? And realism is is an optimist who, who tend to see what doesn't really work with new innovations. Uh, I I remember, for instance, the the while you were talking, my my mind went to the 1960 uh, presidential campaign in the United States when JFK started to mention and coin the very famous definition of the missile gap. No, the Soviet Union uh, lies behind, but is investing so much, and they are so effective in um, space in the space race that they are creating a missile gap. Now, the launch of Sputnik in 1957, and then Yuri Gagarin, Valentina Tereshkova. So in between the late 50s and early 60s, it seemed that the, the Soviet Union was catching up or even surpassing the United States. And this kind of rhetoric of a AI gap or the politicization of this AI from a state like China, as you mentioned, is not investing quantitatively the same amount of money of the United States or Anglo-Saxon societies in this new technology, but the use that China does or may do when it comes to AI to us seems much more threatening. So uh, if you want to see the glass of full, and so we won't have a optimistic approach, uh, while human beings have survived the spiral odds uh, many problematic you know, technological evolutions. If, as you mentioned, we, we look at the, 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 not just the first wave of industrialization in the early 19th century, but if we start from the second, so from to the middle to late 19th century, so before the First World War, till today, uh, well, most, you know, it's, it's quite evident that there's a correlation between technological innovation and warfare. Uh, The the military has always been a a priority where to apply this kind of technology. We see with steam, battleship, aviation, chemical and biological weapons, nuclear weapons, space, and now perhaps the, the drones, artificial intelligence, emerging and disrupting technology. So there's always been a very close link, and so humanity has survived. Humanity, despite many crises, despite many conflicts, polarization, etc., we have always managed, if we look at the long haul, to make sense of these of these disruption of these new things that enter in our life. We have survived. You know, when computers or calculators arrive into our society. 
uh, we are losing perhaps some capabilities to do calculation with our mind or with you know it's the way in which we were familiar with but you know we are going we're going along if we want to be pessimistic and this is, is always a case and to be to be considered um, well again we are we are dealing with a technology that unlike the others is not also changing the way in which we produce or we move from a place to another but it's is very much able, much more than the others, to change our perception of reality. From fake news, from robots, from uh, you know, modifying images. So it's, it's increasingly difficult, not just for experts, no, sorry, not for the, the main street person, but for experts, for, for people who should be much more aware about the way in which we modify image or we create avatars that what is real and is what is not real uh, what is in the internet what is in the matrix and what is real life uh, so uh, if I think about my daughter who's now eight is eight years old when she will be 28 years old or even 18 how the world will look like uh, will will be will she be able to distinguish what is real and what is not real I hope so but it's, it's increasingly, is a huge question, I think. Last but not least, now since we talked before about um, the, 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 weaponization, the constant weaponization of emerging technologies since the late 19th century to today, we will see, and I, my answer is, is yes, we will see soon uh, not just drones flying, you know, the robots uh, controlled by... A human being somewhere else. We will see physically battalions instead of soldiers made by flesh and bones. We will see robots all around the world. You no, know, from the United States, from China, from great powers, India. Uh, we will see overseas military bases that instead being made up by only by human beings, as we are always being, you know, as we always know since the the dawn of humanity we will see a combination of physical people and robots, only robots. Are we talking about a Stanley Kubrick or Star Wars scenario? I think this is, is much closer than what we, that we, we might expect. The problem in this case is what happens if the opponent, the enemy, capture not just a drone, but a, a, a humanoid uh, robot. Now, instead of having boots on the ground with people dying, Robots don't die, but the, the, the opponent, the enemy, can take the robot as a prisoner, study the technology, and develop its own, its own devices or improve them. So the, 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 what we see is you know, robots that are going to self-destroy themselves in order not to be captured by the enemy. Imagine, for instance, what is going to happen. Uh, we have two conflicts open, one in in eastern Ukraine and the other one in Palestine. Imagine if a significant percentage of the of combatants in the ground, in trenches, not made by humans who, who cared not about their life. Not we, we, we are concerned about the fact that we can be shot and therefore we can die. Robots, theoretically, not. 
And so will the degree of violence, will the degree of war-prone policies will increase because we are increasing the robotization of our armed forces? This is a, it's not just an ethical question. This is a strategic question that uh, I don't know. I doubt how many people are aware of, myself included, of course. Right. That's such... That's such an interesting insight to think that something that began with perhaps drones in Syria has quickly snowballed into thinking about robot armies and and how else we can lower the political costs of war, which might make waging it a bit less costly and maybe more attractive even. And you made an interesting point considering this idea of, of how warfare is prioritized when it comes to new technological developments and that each new frontier of knowledge and each new frontier of technology is met with, okay, how can we apply this to to the battlefield? And we do see, uh, at least in part, a strategy by Rishi Sunak here where there's been obviously an, uh, an effort to reproject the power of the, of the UK or of the, of the bygone British Empire uh, abroad, in particular, in its efforts to to strengthen or reiterate its its partnerships in the Indo Pacific, and and I would say that this is an area, given who the UK has mentioned as as its privileged nations, namely Japan, the US, and Australia, we definitely see this projection in these relationships as well, and AI will most definitely have a role to play as it seems. And do you think in this case then that Rishi Sunak has been at least in part successful in projecting this power or has it been a bit of a futile exercise? I would say that is um, there's a high degree of continuity in this. Um, so I won't give agency of Sunak's agency uh, so much importance, uh, the fact that it could be an interesting move, at least it seemed to be quite surreal, surreal move, uh, the appointment by Sunak of David Cameron as foreign secretary. Uh, Sunak he, he originates from India, he's Hindu. So I see, I, according to I mean, my perspective, the big deal now, you, you mentioned a few countries, but the big deal here is, is India. Will Sunak and Modi try to find a way to get along together? Uh, Modi, Prime Minister Modi of India, has always, has constantly you know, played with this identitarian cultural appeal of diasporas. Right. And, I mean, Sunak... Belongs to is an Indian, is a British Indian, maybe is doesn't part of a diaspora, but they could try. Both of them could try, in a very transactional move, to to play with this identitarian cultural um, you know, stance that the the, the India is fundamental. We we share a common story, and uh, and Modi has been very very successful in this case now in trying to to hedge between China and Russia on one hand, the West on the other hand. So despite all odds, 
temporary crisis between India, Western governments on one hand, Russia and China on the other. Uh, so I would say that if Sunak wants to to provide us with uh, some legacy, at least in this issue area, uh, the five eyes, the, the, the traditional British partners, you know, this is it's too easy. So if you want to have to give an imprinting, a, spe- a footprint in its premiership, especially because he, he faced general elections, likely to be lost, uh, the cherry upon the cake is India. Perfect. And I think that that is a perfect place to close our discussion. Uh, we've gone, I think, now for quite some time, but I think you make really interesting points. I think we often overlook the role of India, at least in AI. I haven't seen India or Modi pop up in, in a great many discussions, but it's it's undeniable that in the Indo-Pacific, India is the player to be looking at as sort of an uh, a medium power that is making its carving its own space in in that in that region in particular independently from western powers which might intimidate those who are trying to strengthen western alliances western alliances there so i think this has been really great michele thank you so much for having this discussion with me and i hope everybody enjoyed listening once again we are raya uh, i am francia i'm the editor-in-chief of the research and analysis team and i will pass this back on to you chiara thank you very much thank you so much francia and as you said unfortunately that's all the time we have for today's episode thank you so much michele for joining us and you really provided really impactful insights on rishi sunak's role in us uk intelligence sharing as well as britain's increasing role in the global stage. And you've certainly left us thinking about this topic and how AI is changing global and transatlantic relations. Thank you very much, Chiara and Francia, for the kind invitation. A pleasure. Thank you so much, Michele. It really has been a pleasure having you on the podcast. And thank you for our listeners for tuning in. And goodbye, everyone. And have a great day in your sphere of influence. 